Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Join me today. He's the founder and CEO of the Breakfast Leadership Network, public speaker, author, and podcast host. It's Michael Levitt. How are you doing today, Michael? Alex, I'm awesome. How are you today? I'm doing good. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? I'm originally from the metro Detroit area uh, and lived there for the first quarter century of my life and did all kinds of different things. First job, grocery store clerk, and then rose through the ranks and started working for a CPA firm and worked there for almost a decade uh, in high school, through college, and even after college for a bit. And it was amazing and it provided a good foundation for me on my career and gave me all kinds of different opportunities afterwards. So that's, that's where I'm from. Uh, And uh, back in 2004 uh, with my former wife, I immigrated to Canada because she's Canadian. So moved to Canada and in 2011, I became a dual citizen. So I like to joke that I can vote and screw up two countries, but (laughs) but that's where I stop. I don't tell anybody who I vote for because half of you would hate me. So I just rather, I don't talk about that. I don't really get into politics because unfortunately in this current climate, it's a a no win conversation. So I I just tend to go, I'm not going to bother doing that. Everybody Everybody is right uh, to a certain extent, and and we have more in common than we have different. But you know, right now, I don't think anyone would even agree with that. So I just leave it at there. So that's a, a little bit about me as far as my initial background and 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 where I am today. Growing up in Detroit, you kind of hear in the news about all the things that happened. Were you experienced or were you exposed to that kind of atmosphere in Detroit or was it a different kind of setting than what we hear on the news? Uh, it was a hybrid. I mean, yes, it wasn't made up. It wasn't, you know, falsified information, uh, what was seen, you know, whether it was on Devil's Night, which was the night before Halloween when abandoned homes were set ablaze or when the Tigers won the World Series in 1984 and you know, people were flipping cars and setting them on fire, yeah, there's you know, been misbehavior uh, or bad behavior there for a lot. But Detroit's had quite the rebound, um, even in the downtown sector, uh, where you know, even a decade ago, you wouldn't dream walking down Woodward Avenue um, by yourself or even in a small group. Now there's bars and restaurants and revitalized old factories that are now condo buildings. It's had a complete rebirth and, uh, I'm thrilled to see it when I do get back home to, to see that. And there's still, you know, some troublesome areas as every major metropolitan city has those, but, uh, Detroit is definitely a lot better, uh, than they were, you know, even 10 years ago. So it's, it's, been, it's, it's a nice turnaround to see, and I hope it continues. You talked about the different jobs that you had at a young age or starting in like the high school days. What was the biggest thing you learned about yourself through those jobs? I think how agile I was to be able to learn different techniques. So from bagging groceries to being an accountant, to going into IT, to going into startups, to going into healthcare, to launching my own business. Uh, There's been all kinds of pivots. And what I've discovered, and a lot of sectors don't like hearing this, but 
again, there's a lot more in common than different. Mm-hmm. Yes, our widgets may look a little different, but ultimately the same foundation of how you work with customers or clients or patients, whatever you want to call those individuals, they're still human beings. So working with people, figuring out what they need from you, helping them to accomplish what they need to accomplish and whatever the case may be. And that'll make things better. And for me, I, again, I think if I had to say, if there was one job that was the most instrumental, it would probably be the auditing role that I did while I was in public accounting, because thankfully the firm that I worked for, you know, audited all kinds of different industries. So I had exposure to pretty much every industry which was amazing. So as I started doing different types of work, they were like, wow, you work, you know, a lot about this industry, even though you never really worked in it. But as an auditor, you need to understand the nuances of what an industry does and the challenges and financial activities and all of that. And I think that provided a really good framework for me and the success that I've had in my career. It definitely shows that you wanted to become more of an all-around person, not focusing on one area, but you benefited from having that knowledge in those different industries so that when people came to you, you could kind of help them in a way. And I think that's what a lot of people nowadays should do. They shouldn't just focus on one area, have that knowledge in all different aspects, because you never know what can happen. You never know if your company is going to work in that kind of industry in the future. Yeah, it's been very helpful for me because uh, especially during economic challenges, you know, there's always an industry that's okay and there's some that struggle a bit and I've always been able to keep employed, you know, more or less and and find opportunities to do things and people ask me, okay, well, where did you learn that technique or how did you learn that skill? And sometimes it takes me a while to f- remember where I learned these things because you know, I pick up things along the way and, you know, I have my tool bag of all kinds of different skills that I've picked up. And sure, some of them may have been from the accounting. Some of them could have been from IT. Some of them could have been the startup work or you know, sitting on boards of directors or healthcare or consulting, you name it. Uh, it's just one of those things where I just do it. I don't necessarily think, okay, I need to grab from the accounting tool bag. I don't know. I just grab whatever I need at the time. And it's really helped me, uh, to be able to help everyone that I serve. Well, something similar that we both have experienced is the grocery side. I started my first job as a cashier working in a grocery store. And you mentioned how the importance of being able to interact with customers, talking to people and working as a team. And I think that job for me got me going. Like I was excelling at working with customers because I was moving up in the ranks And the job that I'm in now, they see how I am with customers and they view me as a leader and a kind of a trainer in that kind of setting. So it just shows that the starting out and working at a young age can help build that skill set through the future and people will recognize your talent in a way. Yeah, it's one of those industries too. I mean, there's a handful of businesses when you're a teenager that you can work in, but the grocery store one, I think really helped me both from a professional standpoint and also a personal one, because when you're working, especially, you know, I was, you know, bagging groceries and getting carts and I did some stock, but, you know, cashier, you know, was right next to you. You're you're handing me the stuffed bag basically. And the thing of it is, it's one of those roles where you will interact with every layer of society. 
when it comes to economics, mm-hmm. race, gender, everything. You could you could serve somebody that is a multimillionaire to somebody that was able to scrounge up enough money to buy three dollars worth of food yeah. and everyone in between and innate being able to engage with those people at different levels i think has made a huge difference in my life uh so when i interact with anybody um i i can rely on those skills that i learned at a much younger age as you were growing up what was that dream job that you were wanting to pursue Originally, it was definitely being a public accountant. I wanted to be an accountant all the way back, um, let's say, eighth grade. And I wanted to really work on numbers. And, and where it came from was baseball cards, of all things. Uh, okay. I, bought, I bought a pack of Topps baseball cards at uh, the general store just down the street from my grandmother's cabin in northern Michigan. And I never bought a pack of cards before. And I opened up the cards and I saw, you know, the different players and the pictures and all that. And of course, on the back of those cards are their stats. And I'm looking at the stats going, okay, what is ERA? Okay, what does that mean? And, you know, basically, I, f- I figured out how to calculate a batting average, how to calculate earned run average, and, and some other statistics, you know, the stuff that they report on now, you know, those stats are definitely computerized. It's hard for a human to be able to calculate all those things, because they, 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 you know, they have all kinds of weird stats in baseball now, but back then I was able to figure that out and I actually enjoyed doing it. And I didn't have a calculator either. It was pencil and paper to figure that out. And, and it was like, okay, I actually like this. And I was, I think I was nine. You see, I would have been nine years old uh, when I first bought those cards. So when I got to, you know, 13 or 14, I'm thinking, okay, this is, I think, a career that I want to go into because at that point in school, you know, they'd say, what do you want to be? And they, you even, they, I remember in school, there was these tests that they had you take, yeah. which would give you an indication of what you want to do. Accountant was one, mortician was another. I had no, <laughs> I had no interest in science and I certainly had no interest in being a mortician. Uh, so um, I, I thought, well, that's great that they think that I'm not going to. And to this day, I've been able to say that I still haven't done that. I don't anticipate that I ever will, Uh, but it was an interesting thing. So I don't know how accurate those were, but uh, accounting and finance definitely came high up on the suggested um, things for me to be. So it was, that was what I wanted to do and did it for a long time in my career and then segued over into information technology and started working at startups and, and then things went on from there. I love those tests because mine was a real estate agent and that was clearly not the path that I wanted to go down into. But it just shows like maybe it's a path that you should try, but definitely the mortician part. I'm thinking how, unless you have that passion for that, it's definitely it's something that's definitely off the radar in some people's worlds. Yeah, yeah, I, I know somebody, a, a colleague of mine has his wife is a, a child mortician and she's one of the best in the state that they live in. And I'm thinking, not only did I not want to be a mortician, I certainly would want to be one for 
you know, a deceased child, but you know, she's, you know, one of the best in the world at it and it's her passion. And, you know, she takes, you know, really good care of, of the situation, but yeah, I'm like, no, that's all right. I mean, I barely, the only reason I passed science class in school is because I don't think Mr. Burrell wanted to see me next year. <laughs> I, I really, I got to see, yeah, that was it. I'm, I'm and, and Mr. Burrell, if you happen to be watching or still live or listening, thank you. Um, cause I didn't want to see you either. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing against you. I liked him as a teacher. He was cool, but yeah, I, I couldn't quite get science. It was one of those things that, uh, just never grasped. But then ironically, I worked in healthcare as an executive. So yeah, that's the uh, universe poking fun at me, I think. As you were going through the different career paths, were you focused on going through jobs or did you want to go to college? What was that path and did you do both at the same time? Yeah, through college, I worked for the CPA firm. So I was staying in accounting and then got married and then relocated and took a role that was a hybrid of an accounting manager and technology manager. So, uh, which at that time you started to see a lot of people that had those skill sets where they were relatively decent with computers and, uh, and of course, obviously the finance background. So started that path. And then from there, I left that organization and went to work for one of our vendors uh, that was in the software development industry. So I went uh, to work for them and then stayed in the IT world uh, up until until my healthcare role in 2007. So that would have been 90, so a decade. Uh, so 97 to 2007, I was in an IT world uh, and then you know took the healthcare role because uh, I had the startup experience and executive experience and, and whatnot. So, uh, but yeah, it was... It, it provided a good foundation for me. And while the IT stuff, I thought, okay, this is good. And I was decent at it. Again, the customer service skills, I think it was a big selling point uh, for a lot of the work that I did. Uh, because a lot of times people, and I, I don't want to say this, but I will sometimes, and not so much now, but in the early days when IT was getting rolled out in companies and all of that, the skill set of the technicians were amazing. They knew their tech but they really didn't have exposure to customer service as much or customer service skills. So they were a little rough. They didn't necessarily work in groceries or a fast food restaurant before their first roles were IT because they were tinkering around with them when they were kids. So uh, they, they had the great tech skills, but their customer service wasn't. So I had the tech skills plus the customer service skills. So it really boded well for me, but Ultimately, yeah, it, it, the accounting helped me get to that. And the IT and the startups helped me get into healthcare. And then um, it's been a wild ride for sure. Would you feel that something that made you stand out was the background in the IT, the customer service and the skills that you did have? It did. It did, especially when I was talking with organizations about potential roles, you know, in the, in the few times that I was, you know, searching for new roles, my skill set uh, definitely was, uh, I, I want to say, well, I think it, it, it helped me, like you said, stand out a little bit more than other people, depending on the organization. Sometimes they're thinking, okay, wait a minute, you're, you're overqualified, which a lot of people tend to run into uh, when you get a lot of experience. Uh, but for me, you know, it, I think it did ultimately help. It's helped me in every role that I've ever done, because again, with all the tools and experiences, 
uh, it helps you navigate through challenging times. And I think that's the big takeaway from, from all of my experiences has been, you know, it prepared me to be able to navigate through some challenging situations. You talked about going through different career paths or different jobs. Did you ever worry that there wasn't never a role that you could see yourself long-term, like forever, or did you kind of look at it as what's my next challenge I want to accomplish? As much as I would say that I would love to be like our you know, previous generations, you work for one organization for 25 or 30 years, you get the gold watch and the retirement and everybody loves you and they miss you and all that good stuff. I knew at a very young age that I would be moving around from different things. Uh, my dad, uh, he worked in the auto sector and he pretty much worked from when he was 18 uh, and then, of course, other than two years that he served in the, in the army uh, during the Vietnam War. Uh, but after that, he w- went back into that role and worked there until he retired. So he was in that industry for a long time, one company. Um, and he but he told me, he said, you know, don't expect this to be, you know, what your path will be. You're going to probably switch you know, companies a bit. I don't think that he thought that I would switch careers. Uh, but I looked at things as opportunities and I thought, okay, this is an opportunity. Am I interested in it? Yeah. You know, let's try something. Let's, let's do something different. Let's push myself a bit. And from leaving the comfort of an accounting world to go into it and work on data centers across the globe and deploy things and networking and all that stuff that I don't miss now. (laughs) I am so thankful. I don't work in that field. Um, but, you know, I'm thankful for the people to do. But learning those skills, of course, was obviously quite lucrative from a career standpoint and helped me, you know, move up, you know, from a financial standpoint, as well as, you know, career growth. And I think ultimately it, and it's not for everybody, but I, I think exposing yourself to different types of jobs or tasks or careers I think bodes well for a long time. They're like, okay, you're bouncing around a little bit. Now uh, it's the opposite effects. Like, wow, you've been with that organization for five years. Do you even know what's trending right now? You know, it's because a lot of organizations, unfortunately uh, don't do a great job on continuous professional development of their staff. You know, they, they can get a little stagnant. Not everybody. There's some organizations that do a great job of keeping up and they're the latest and the greatest and all of that. But some, unfortunately, you know, are, are still doing the same things. Although I, I'm going to put an asterisk on that. This pandemic has kind of forced their hand a bit and mm. fast forwarded some initiatives that would probably have been rolled out 2027, 2028, maybe 2030, which is really hard to say, but that's, it's really not that far off. If we think about it, this pandemic has fast forwarded a lot of those initiatives and made them a requirement now. And a lot of organizations have done a good job with it. You know, of course there was cuts and scrapes and bruises, but they, they were able to get it done. Uh, but again, I, for my recommendation to people is work, what motivates you? Now, don't make work your life. Don't do that. And too many of us fall victim to that. We, we make work our life. And it's like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. That's, that's the wrong thing to do. Make it to something you enjoy because you spend a lot of hours in it. But don't make it your life. You know, make your life be something 
you know, beneficial to you and, and make, just make sure your work isn't your life. Talking on that topic, were you able to have separate the personal life and the professional life and be able to have that mental health and positive vibes, no matter what, or did you have those challenges that you faced? Oh, I had the challenges. I, 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 throughout my career building up over the years, um, I had a real problem establishing boundaries around working and not working. And my last, uh, or actually my first healthcare role, um, that was in from 2007 to 2010, um, that one, or excuse me, 2009, um, that one quite frankly, nearly killed me. Um, I did not have boundaries. I wasn't taking care of myself. I was working basically 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. seven days a week and for two years. And it all came to a crashing halt in May of 2009 when I had what I like to call my year of worst case scenarios, which over a period of a year, so from May 2009 to May 2010, the following happened to me. I had a heart attack that should have killed me. Then I lost my job during the Great Recession. And then several months later, my car was repossessed. And then finally, my home was foreclosed. All those things happened in a year. Um, And because I was burned out, I just wasn't taking care of myself. And I wasn't establishing a work-life harmony. I was just work. There was no living. Uh, And all those things happened because, again, I was not prioritizing my well-being first. And it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me to have all of those losses. I mean, those are big losses. Think about it. Heart attack when I was, I was 40 years old. 40-year-olds are not supposed to have heart attacks, although unfortunately we're seeing a lot more people having cardiac events at age 40 or earlier. That scares me. Um, job loss, we've all, you know, experienced, some of us, maybe not all of us, but a lot of people have worried about that or maybe they've had that happen to them. But when you, you get your car taken away by the bank and your house, taken away by the bank, uh, that those, that's going to ruin your day. Okay. Um, and, and completely upheaval. And, you know, you, so you take all four of those big, huge losses and throw them into a, a you know, period of a year. Yeah. It's, I wouldn't necessarily say it was a great time, but it, it woke me up and it gave me an opportunity to really take a long, hard look at what was important to me from my personal walk as well as my professional walk. And you know, I reinvented my life and I needed to, not everybody does when they have things like that happen to, but for my situation, I knew it was like, okay, I'm really down the rabbit hole. I got to dig out of this and, and take a real long, hard look at how I'm living and, and make some pretty significant adjustments, which I did. And uh, again, it's the best thing that ever happened to me because I did reinvent my life. I changed a lot and it you know became better in what I do, prioritizing my well-being and self-care and all the other things while thriving in the work that I do. So it's it's been positive. I, I wish I wouldn't have had to go through the things that I did for that to happen. But in my case, apparently it was required. So it was a pretty expensive entry fee, that's for sure. Did you have a support system that helped you motivate you to get back on your feet, find that next step in your path? Yeah, a couple things. One, we'll go back to Detroit for a moment. Um, there's a resiliency. Anybody that's listening who is from the greater Detroit area, 
you you know what I'm talking about. Um, there's there's a spirit of Detroit, okay. And yes, it's a statue that's downtown, but there's uh, let me talk about the spirit of Detroit. Detroit was knocked down a lot over the last half century. Went through a lot of difficult times, but we get back up. You know, there's a statue of Joe Lewis, the boxer's fist downtown as well. Um, I actually got a 3D print of it. Um, it's a reminder to me going, okay, if you get knocked down in life, get back up. You dust yourself off and you go, okay, you regroup and then you get back into the ring. And that's what I did with all those things that happened to me. And I, I wouldn't blame anybody if, you know, all those things happen if they didn't want to crawl out of bed ever again. I get it. But when we have setbacks, you got to dust yourself off and get back into the ring. Uh, and that's what I did. Um, I think that, you know, because of that backdrop of where I'm from, it helped me, you know, really cheer myself on. I mean, I, I ultimately it was up to me. I mean, yeah, I could have blamed all kinds of different people for what happened to me, but you know what? I was the common denominator in all of those things. It was me. So I had to make sure that I took care of me first, that I loved me, you know, and, and really appreciated even although all the mistakes I made and bad choices and all that, you know, still had to be really easy on myself because there's nobody I spend more time with than me. So uh, making sure that that was in check. So doing that, uh, you know, close family, you know, handful of friends were supportive um, and I was able to kind of reinvent i had a lot of mentors you know online i you know there was people that were supporting you know that were complete strangers um that encouraged me and kind of gave me a roadmap of in a way how to just take stock in your life and and rebuild and and look at things differently and take things take things take some things more seriously but take a lot less or a lot of other things less seriously and I think that was a big pivot for me and it made a big difference. Did you have to change your mindset on where you're going in your career and knowing that you can't go back to working from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. seven days a week? Or did you kind of change the direction and how did you go from there? Yeah, the first role that I took um, after all of those events, ironically, was in healthcare, And my parents wanted to have me committed. They're like, you're crazy. That's the field that nearly killed you. You're going back into it. And I said, I'm going to do it differently this time. Uh, And being stubborn like they are, um, they weren't surprised by that. And I did. And I immediately went, okay, these are the hours I'm working. And I confirmed that with my boss. It's like, okay, what are the hours? Okay. Um, And my first boss, she was really good about not reaching out after hours, you know, because she had a work-life balance thing for her own self. She had a young child at the time and, uh, you know, didn't really push things. And the organization was such where it worked well for me to get back into it. And then subsequently I worked for a couple other organizations and in each situation I made sure, you know, especially during the interview process, I'm like, okay, what are the hours? Okay. Now what are the real hours? And they kind of look at me I want to know if I'm going to get an email or a text message from you at 11 PM at night on a Saturday. And they always said, Oh, absolutely not. When the ones that said, you know, absolutely not, you're not going to get one. Then I knew, okay. The other ones that were kind of like, 
well, you know, sometimes there's things that come up and we got to deal with it. I mean, that was a big red flag for me. I'm like, okay, yeah, these people are sending emails on Saturday nights at 11 p.m. It's like, look, you know, I could be out at a pub watching a sporting event. You don't want me working on anything. If yeah. I'm, if I'm, it's just you're not getting the full version of me, nor should you, because come on, you know, it, especially if the role was a quote unquote nine to five, that's not, you know, 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. It was 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. So, but that was one thing you know, I established those boundaries right away and made sure that I prevented that. And also, too, is an executive and a leader, I had to make sure that I also did not send messages after hours or on weekends. And I made it crystal clear to staff. So you're not going to get those from me unless it's a really, really, really urgent issue. And here's the definition, which could be updated, but here's the definition of what I deem urgent issues. You know, when you people say, well, I'll only reach out to you if it's urgent. Okay. Define urgent. What are those situations? And literally gave them a, a very short list. And I always correct people too, having worked in healthcare. It's like, it's not an emergency. And I was like, well, you, you have emergency situations. And I said, are you in healthcare? No, there's only one entity on the planet that has emergency on their building. That's a hospital. So unless you work in a hospital, please stop using the word emergency, urgent, top priority, change your vernacular, please. Um, actually, hospitals should trade, you know, trademark the word emergency that anybody that uses it has to pay them a royalty. It'll stop really quick or the hospitals will get a lot more funding to be able to do some things in innovation and all that. But I always correct people say it's not an emergency. It's urgent. It's like if they're bleeding. OK, that's an emergency because they're going to go to hospital. But if it's if it's something where this is broken or we can't connect to this or that, that's urgent. It's not an emergency. It's urgent. So that, that was a big thing that I like to correct people on. I think that's so true. And especially I think people when they're on vacations and they're getting all these emails and messages and they're like, well, it's an emergency. You need to answer. I'm like, no, you knew I was not going to be here. So you can handle it. It's not going to change what happens with my position if I'm not able to answer this one email. It can wait until next week. And I think it also depends on like what you said with the red flags and going into those interviews. It's how the managers manage it while you're gone also. And that is a huge thing for me. If I can't trust my managers to handle something while I'm gone, it's just not going to go well from then on. So I think you brought up a great point that a lot of people won't admit to themselves that they can't handle it unless they're in that nine to five. But I think it's so true. I think a lot of people that are listening to this are going to say, I'm going through that same situation. And I know I need to make some changes so that I can stay positive, mentally be there and give my employer the best work I can during the time I'm working. And that's critical because if you're working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, you're not giving your best. You can't, your body can't yep. withstand that. The World Health Organization, and we've heard about them over the last couple of years, especially with COVID-19, but prior to the pandemic starting, they released information uh, from 2016, it was a study, and it said over three quarters of a million people, so it was like 763,000, I think, people annually, globally die each year of heart disease or stroke 
if they work more than 55 hours a week. Wow. So I always ask people, are you working more than 55 hours a week? And if they nod yes, like you're flirting with something that you shouldn't be flirting with. And because that data was from 2016, which was probably compiled 2014, 2015, all of that, based on the stats that I'm seeing in other studies and with stress and burnout and all of that, I'm guessing that that number is pretty close to a million people globally are dying a year of this. This pandemic has created what we like to hear about the great resignation. This was building up prior to the pandemic. People were frustrated. There were a lot of people that were launching their own businesses because not because they had that entrepreneurial spirit. Maybe some of them did, hopefully most, but most of them were doing it because they were sick and tired of working in an environment that was toxic, working long hours, lousy managers, unrealistic work demands. The workflow is non-existent. Keep getting piling on, but getting yelled at because you're not getting anything done. It's like, I can't work on this when you're telling me to work on this. Well, it needs to get done. Hmm. Yeah. That's why you're seeing so many people leaving their jobs. They're like, screw it. I'm not going to do it. And that's why with, again, with government assistance, and I'm not going to get into this debate on this, but a lot of people during this pandemic became really good with budgeting and realized and made some cuts and adjustments. And with the government assistance and all of that, that has been you know, out because people were unable to work because of the pandemic. They lowered their monthly bills to the point where they're like, you know what? I don't have to pay or get keep that high stress, but it's great paid job. I can take something with a lot less stress for less money and not have to deal with that jerk of a boss or a crazy organization they will never hire enough people to do the job. Yep. And it's, you know, another phrase I hear a lot is the great reset. And that's what this thing is. It's, it's, and I hope that organizations will wake up to this and start realizing, okay, we need to do something different. Otherwise we're not going to retain it. We've already seen the challenges in restaurants. We've seen challenges in a lot of the service industry where people are just not going to work. They're up and leaving. And you see places all the time where it's like, sorry, we're, we're closed today because we don't have enough staff. I'm like, okay, that, that's odd. Well, we're seeing it a lot more because people are going, no, I'm not going to work for this mini wage job and be treated like an animal by the boss and by customers. Why? I don't need to do that. I can, if I can make minimum wage doing anything, I can go someplace and just do stock work or something where I'm not engaging with anybody and just pushing things in and everything's done or they're making money online, doing different things. And it's, it's going to be an interesting dynamic to watch over the next few years to see how these things shift. But ultimately my hope is organizations will do a better job training their managers to be more human and treat their employees. Well, um, give them the flexibility to work when they want to work and you'll have more creative and healthy employees, which is going to mean better products and services that your company produces for your customers. So how did the Breakfast Leadership Network come around? What got you started in that? And how has that made a big difference in your life? Yeah, I launched the organization after going back into healthcare and working in a few years and looking at my colleagues and going, wow, you guys are going down the same road that I did. And it scared me. And I thought, okay, I need to do something about it. So I started researching burnout 
a little bit more and, and realized, ooh, this is a problem. And it's not just limited to healthcare. It seems to be in every industry. So I started curating content, writing about it, launched my podcast show, uh, wrote some books on burnout, my own you know, personal journey with burnout. And it, it's taken a life of its own. And initially, the work that I was doing was exclusively just consulting with C-suite executives and because I was one as well and could connect with them in a way where they felt comfortable sharing some of the things that they were going through. Because if you're a C-suite executive, let's say of a publicly traded company, can even be a Fortune 500 company, and word gets out that the CEO or COO or vice president of whatever is burning out, the stock will tank, which means the investors will not be happy and they will let the board know we're not happy. And then it just creates this snowball of really, really bad situations. So for me, in those early days, you know, like a lot of consultants and businesses will say, these are the companies I work with. Well, I couldn't do that because some of the people I was working with, they didn't want public known that they were struggling with some things. Worked through it. They're much better now. They've learned some tools and techniques to be able to navigate the stress and of work and all that. I, I never promise I will get rid of your stress. Impossible. Work <laughs> is stressful. Life is stressful. It's how you approach it. What do you do for yourself to make sure that you are healthy so you can navigate around it or through it without getting a lot of bumps and bruises? So I started with that. And then as I started writing books and articles and the show, I was talking with a colleague of mine that owns um, a network. And he said, you've got a network. He basically said, you got a media network or a media firm. I'm like, no, I don't. I consult. Okay. Yeah. I do this podcast and yeah, I write and all this. And he said, okay, let me show you this company. It's a network. They do this, this, and this, and this. And I look at it and he said, guess what? You do this, 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 and this. Like, well, what do you know? So (laughs) I I blame him for, you know, the network component of it, but yeah, that's how it came about and how it's changed my life is well, one, I, you know, I'm on shows like this and I interview and I'm in Forbes and Inc and, you know, all kinds of press and CBS and all Fox, NBC, you know, all those companies. And I get to, you know, tell people, you know what, you don't have to burn out. You, you don't have to, you think you're stuck with it. You don't have to, here's some things that you can stop burnout from. Then of course is the deeper work. Okay. Why did you burn out? What did you do? to create these situations because you did something or a series of events put you in this situation. So you have to dig back and go, okay, well, why did you choose that? Why did you feel it was important for you to work in that role? Why did you need to buy that car? Or why did you feel the need to buy that house or live in that community? What were the reasons behind it? Because our choices of course have consequences. So mm-hmm. if you, if you buy a house, that's a little out of your price range or it's okay and you're in a fixed mortgage, okay, great. But if you're in a variable mortgage, every time the Fed chair says something about interest rates, you're freaking out because you know a half of a point is going to be an extra $300 a month in your mortgage payment. And you're going, I'm already up to here. How am I going to find an extra $300? That's going to put me underwater here. So the, the stress 
of overcommitment and different things like that. It's just, I I see it all the time. And that's my hope. And and why I do the work that I do is to say, no, you don't have to do it that way. You can choose differently, but you need to understand you. And a lot of people don't ask themselves, who am I? We can easily say, well, I work in this and I do this and this, but for us to ask ourselves and actually look in, sometimes that's a Pandora's box. People don't feel comfortable opening and the work that I do, especially in the therapy side of the work that I do. Um, it's a difficult, difficult thing for a lot of people to do, but once they do and they f- do it in a way where they're not judging themselves, they got to get past that. It's like, no, 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 no. You have to look at this. You got to love yourself and let's look at it and go, oh, okay, this is what this is about. Okay. Why did I choose that? Okay. And you go, all right, well, you chose that now. Okay. Now you can choose differently or make a different path and then you can feel easier and feel better and it has a positive ripple effect once you do that do you feel comparing yourself with someone that's in a similar industry that you are with burnout that didn't go through what you have gone through do you think your clients or individual companies that you work with see the value that you give because you have that experience going through it Potentially, I guess it would depend on on the opinion of the client, because ultimately it's the client that chooses to work with me mm-hmm. or with you know the people that are in this industry. And I personally know a ton of them, you know, across the globe, and have referred people you know to them based on geographics or just I think you'd be better off working with this person or this person uh, because there's uh, there's more work than there's enough, there's not enough people doing the work. Uh, but for me, you know, it ultimately depends on, you know, does the client have this connection with me and vice versa that they feel comfortable with the approach that I'm going to take with them in order for them to get to where they want to get to. It's not where I want them to get mm-hmm. where I want them to get is none of my business. It's just not, it's what, you know, what do you want? What's the outcome you're looking for? And they may not know, especially if they're really burned out. All they want to do is, I just want to be able to sleep. Okay. All right. Well, let's start working on some techniques that can help you get better sleep. And then from there, okay, what would you like to work on next? Because everybody thinks I got to fix all these things. You might, it's like, you know, buying a house is a, you know, do it yourself kind of thing. And you're like, you, you were able to get it cheap, but it needs a lot of work. Well, you're not going to work on everything at once. You're going to have to pick a room and start working on it. And some rooms are going to take longer than others, you know, repairs in some rooms may end up causing you to have to move to a different room because of, you know, maybe there's a wood shortage, not that anything like that's happened over the last few months, <laughs> uh, or you know, supply chain issues and all the things we find. But same thing with us. When we're working on us, you just sometimes you look at it, it's like it's too big. Like, of course it is. It's a mountain. You're trying to climb up a mountain and you want to get up to the top. Unless you got a helicopter, it's one step at a time. So let's let's work on the stuff that would be easy for you to improve on. And you start getting that momentum and you start getting better. It's like sports teams that keep losing. And then all of a sudden they start winning some games. They start building on that and they start winning a little bit more and a little bit more. And then they get better. It's the same thing with us, you know, just subtle improvements 
uh, day by day um, have a huge, huge ripple effect long-term. Have you seen doing this career that you are in changes in your health personally that is completely different than what you were going through years ago and having that kind of impact with the heart attack and the changes in your life? Oh yeah, definitely. One, I'm off of the heart medication, uh, which is not easy to do. You have to make some pretty big changes in your life from a exercise, nutrition, everything else. Uh, So I'm off those medications and I'm thankful for that because, you know, you have a heart attack at 40 and average lifespan, you know, say I live into my eighties or nineties. If I was stayed on that medication, those that's four or five decades of taking this medication. Mm -hmm. That's going to take a toll. Um, I know working in healthcare, you know, a lot of my colleagues in the healthcare business don't like hearing me saying this, but yeah, medications long-term are not good for you. Uh, my, again, I'm not, uh, not, I'm not a nutritionist or a dietitian, but you know what? Food is medicine. Um, and taking good care of yourself, getting the right amount of activity in, eating the right foods for you. I could say, eat, you know, eat this, eat that. No, no, everybody's got food intolerances. And real quick, I had a food intolerance test done a couple of months ago. I was tested on over 250 different types of foods. And I, and I knew that I had some food allergies to certain things. I know I'm lactose intolerant. I'm allergic to potatoes of all things. Um, and there was a, a bunch of other things that I was unaware that I had an intolerance to. So I've been eliminating those things from my diet and adding things that were on the green page or pages. Thankfully, there was a lot more foods that were good for me than not, but still there was some on that list. I was shocked to see. I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that. So once I eliminated those, it, it, it's made a big difference because it means your gut isn't trying to fight this foreign object. Because when you have an intolerance to food, your gut is, it, it's like a foreign object. It's like, I don't know what to do with this. So it tries to process it but it's using extra energy to do so, which means taking energy from other parts of your body that you need, especially when you sleep, because our gut tends to be really active when we sleep. So if you're eating foods that you don't have an intolerance to, then your body's going to be able to process that food well, which means you're going to sleep better, which means you're going to feel better, which means stress won't stick to you as easy, which will have a positive effect on everything you do. So, um, we, we are more connected than we think. And once we start figuring out how we can be our best version of ourselves, uh, that's when life gets a bit more enjoyable, quite frankly. And you get to do things in life you enjoy doing and just navigate through pandemics a bit easier as well. That's you know, from my observation anyway. So what does the future look like for you? What are you hoping to accomplish personally and professionally in the next couple of years? Oh, to retire, uh, I think would be great. (laughs) So working on that. Um, No, I I see that tongue in cheek because um, if you're not using your brain and doing things and being challenged, then you just kind of start to fade away and you can run into health challenges too, because you're not using your brain and your activity and, uh, motivated in life to do things or learn new things. So uh, I, I say that tongue in cheek, but, you know, I would, you know, I'm definitely you know, working towards an, an earlier than what is statistically normal retirement, if at all possible. And that's the things I'm working on. But until then, um, continuing to bring awareness on 
burnout prevention, some techniques that people can implement right away to stop their burnout in and provide guidance on, okay, how to dig deeper and figure out why did I burn out? What, what did I do to create this so I can make some adjustments here and there so I don't have it happen again? I was burned out once. Should have killed me. It didn't. I don't want to go down that path again. So I made the adjustments I needed to make in my life to make sure that I don't. And everyone else can do the same thing. The final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? Get the best sleep you possibly can. Instead of buying the latest iPhone or the latest big screen television, buy the best mattress you can afford and the best pillows you can afford. Um, Real quick story. My neighbors in my condo building, I saw them a few months ago. They came back from the mall and they were carrying a box that had two pillows in it. Those pillows cost $250 each. They were $500 in two pillows. Most of us have never spent $500 in our entire lives on pillows. They dropped (laughs) it. They dropped it on two. Now they work in a very, very stressful industry and their roles are extremely stressful. But if you knew them, you never would guess Mm -hmm. because they get amazing sleep night after night. They take really good care of themselves so they can work in a very stressful situation. Now, it doesn't mean that they're not impacted by stress. Of course, we all are. We're all going to have days like that. But they realize if they spend money on getting the best sleep possible, then Everything else is going to work better. Your digestive system is going to work better. Your body's not going to have aches. You're going to feel better. You're going to have a better metabolism, which means you won't gain weight. You'll have the natural energy to do things in life, not just the work, but the fun stuff. Going on trips or going to do things, you'll have the energy. You won't be yawning at 930 before the main act comes on in a concert you're going because you're going to feel naturally energetic on things because... You're taking better care of yourselves. You do that, um, it's going to make your life better, which means you're going to be better at what you do in work. You're going to have clarity to be able to do things in life you like doing. You're going to look for opportunities to grow personally and professionally. You'll get promoted because they're like, wow, this this is a really good person. They're, They're learning a lot. They're doing great things. And you'll rise through the ranks and you'll be able to be successful in anything you do just by getting good sleep and taking care of yourself. You you do those things, everything else will fall into place. Well, Michael, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future has for you. Thank you very much. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Make sure you follow, subscribe on all major audio platforms, and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel through the full-length episode and video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.